Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I may or may not have hired a crowd, but I'm not going to tell you if I did. <laughs> uh, it's so lovely to be with you this morning, and how wonderful to just share God's word from this place of worship. I must say, I didn't want to turn around at a stage. I was just listening to the resonance of the voices, and it felt to me like they wanted to lift the ceiling. <laughs> Did you experience that too? Yeah, it was just really, really lovely. So it's great to be here. We're a smaller crowd than usual, but that's quite lovely because I really do see today as a bit of a, a family service. And I hope that if you are five years old or 105 years old, that there would be something in today's message that would be just for you. All right, are you ready to go? Okay, so about 25 years ago, a movie was released um, and it really wowed and it messed with movie, uh, movie watchers' minds. So it was an absolute hit and it is actually still pretty famous today. So what is the secret of its success? Well, the movie's title is The Usual Suspects. Have any of you seen that? The Usual Suspects? Maybe a few? Okay, and the thing that made it such a great hit was the fact that the villain, okay, the bad guy, turned out to be the most unusual of the suspects um, of everyone. Okay, so he was completely unexpected, and I'm sorry if I'm giving that away and that you won't watch the movie now, but the reason he was so unexpected is because he was a cripple. <laughs> so looks can sometimes be very deceiving, and often we are uh, fooled by our own expectations of how things should turn out. Disability can sometimes be the perfect disguise. Do you think these uh, movie makers stumbled across something new when they made this movie? I don't think so, because the Bible is full of stories of upturned expectations of um, strength disguised as weakness and of the outsider who actually gets to play a role on center stage. So this is what we are going to be looking at today, um, a story in which all of these things come to pass. And it is the story of Ehud in Judges. Now, this is not a very well-known story. Does anyone know the story, Ehud, in the book of Judges? I'm seeing some hands out there. Good. Okay, wonderful. So today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm, I'm not actually going to read the story from Scripture. I'm going to tell it because it is a story, and as I tell it, I'm going to weave into the story some of the insights that I've picked up as I've just studied a little bit of the history and a little bit of the culture of the time, so that we can understand it the way the original hearers understood it. So I hope that's okay, but I would love it if when you are home, you would turn to your Bibles in Judges chapter 3, and you would read from verse 12 all the way to verse 30, and read it for yourself, read it as a family, and, um, and tuck into to the Scriptures. So we need to go way back in time, okay? Like 3,000 years back in time. That is a long time, and it's very hard to imagine what life was like in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. So to give you a clue, 
cutting edge had nothing to do with smartphones or laptops or artificial intelligence. The thing that was state of the art 3,000 years ago was, dun dun dun, Iron, okay? If you had access to iron, if you were a society that had access to iron, you would have the advantage over a society that only had bronze. So let's put it in today's terms. Iron was the iPhone 11 Pro, <laughs> and bronze was the iPhone 4, okay? Bronze was just so yesterday. Okay, so this is, this is a little bit important to know for our story. But not only do we have to um, relocate ourselves in time, but also in geography. So the place where the story plays out is in the land around the Dead Sea. Okay, so this is the land that God promised to his people. It's the land of Canaan, and it's incredibly lush land. And then the other thing that we have to just look at is who were these people of God? Who were they and where did they come from? Well, they started as a little family that God made a promise to. He promised them land and descendants and blessing. And this family grew until it became a mighty nation that God blessed and then delivered from slavery and then brought to this land of promise. And this is, this is where the book of Judges kicks off, in the land of promise with the people of God. So something that's good to know in the culture of the day is the importance of names. How many of you have heard of some strange celebrity names? Have you heard of some strange celebrity names as names that they call their children? Like today, names can be very random. Um, you get uh, some celebrities, you get them calling their children Apple. I've even heard of Moon Unit and Dweezil. <laughs> okay. But this was not the case for the characters of our story, and it is not the case for the people of God. Names in this culture played an incredibly important role and often would be part of defining a person's destiny. Just think of Abraham. Um, his name was Abram and God changed it to Abraham. Sarai became Sarah and Jacob became Israel. So not all people though had a positive story to tell. And the main character of our story, his name is Ehud, and it comes with a little descriptor. Um, his name's descriptor was a little unfortunate. Um, when, when you read his story in the Bible, it says, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now, do you remember the 12 sons of Jacob? Do you remember them? And one of them was Benjamin. And so Ehud was a, a descendant of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, he was one of his father's favorites, and his name means son of my right hand. So Ehud was the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, son of my right hand. However, the unfortunate thing is that Ehud, the scriptures tell us, probably was deformed in his right hand, okay? When we read the text in our English Bibles, it speaks of Ehud as being left-handed. 
But when you actually go to the original Hebrew, that's not what it says. It doesn't explicitly say he was just left-handed. It says he was restricted or he was bound in his right hand. So there was some kind, I don't want to use the word handicap because it's <laughs> just too punny, but he was handicapped in his right hand, so he was forced to be left-handed. So Ehud, son of my right hand, was left-handed. A little bit of an ironic and unfortunate situation. So Ehud lived in the late Bronze Age, he lived in the land of Canaan, and he lived in this time of history where, thing, where things were changing, and they were changing fast. Weapons and warfare was changing because of the introduction of iron. It was a time of a lot of chaos. It was a dark and a dangerous time because all these different factions were fighting for position and power in this kind of undefined space in world history. So Ehud finds himself here. What would happen is different um, tribes would um, ally themselves with one another under the leadership of a fierce, robust, uh, courageous, bold warlord. And then they would do this to try and consolidate power. And there was a specific king, and this king is the villain in our story. His name is King Eglon, and he was the king of the Moabites and a very ruthless warlord. So this king was destined to cross paths with our main character, Ehud, in the story. And he was destined to cross paths with the people of God. Are you all still with me? You out there? Just checking. Okay, good. So these people of God, let's, let's go back to where they are at. Can you remember that they had been slaves for a number of generations? Then they were upgraded from slaves to the status of nomads, and they wandered the desert for 40 years. And now they'd finally reached the promised land, and they were just starting to establish themselves in this promised land. They were the new kids on the block. And they need to figure out, how do you do farming? How do you do settled life? So what did they do? They looked to the Canaanites, because the Canaanites around them, they were the pros. They were the experts. They had it down. And I, I guess for the Israelites, they must have looked really sophisticated, really advanced. Unfortunately, the Israelites did not turn to Yahweh. They did not turn to the creator of the universe and say, God, how do we do this? But they looked upon their neighbors and they saw the way that they did things and they said, well, if it works for them, maybe it will work for us. But the big thing about the Canaanites is they saw agriculture and religion as one. So a lot of their uh, practices were, uh, their religious pra practices were all about fertility. And they, they mixed these two things up. And as the Israelites started adopting the Canaanite practices, they also started worshiping Asherah. And she was the fertility goddess. And they started worshiping Baal, who was her um, male counterpart. And they started engaging in these practices, these religious practices, which were really not only sinful, but also really destructive. 
Unfortunately, they forgot who they were. They forgot that they were the people of God and they started to lose their distinctiveness. They started to blur and to blend with the people around them. But God, how many of you have heard that statement before? But God. But God did not forget them. He did not forget his people and he did not forget his mission. Remember, his mission was to create a line, a family through whom one day he could send one final rescuer that could restore mankind to himself. So God did not forget his people, and what did he do? He had to do something pretty dramatic, okay? And he dealt Israel quite a humiliating blow. And he got this King Eglon, this ruthless warlord, he got him to um, form an alliance with two of Israel's most bitter enemies, the, the, the double A's, the Amalekites and the Ammonites. And they formed this alliance and they came and they attacked and they conquered Israel. So Israel became subject to the Moabites for 18 long years. This means that for 18 years they had to pay really extreme and harsh taxes to the Moabites. So they couldn't eat the fruit of their labor. Everything that they'd farmed, they had to give it as a tribute to the Moabite king. And it took them 18 years to come to their senses. But finally, when they were hungry, I guess, and tired and afraid, finally they called out to God for help. I think if I were God, I would have just gone, go away, okay? <laughs> because their hearts had been so stubborn and so disobedient and so... Um, just kind of unbelieving, but, but not God, not God. He, um, he did not wave them away. He saved them, and this is how he did it. So here comes the action part. It was that time of year where the Israelites had to go and take this tribute to the Moabite headquarters to King Eglon. Now, this is not just a little EFT payment that you can do on your banking app. Okay, no. It involved taking cartloads of stuff, cartloads of, of goods, of produce. It involved a whole um, procession of delegates. And it, it needed to be led by somebody. And somebody chose Ehud, this left-handed crippled guy to lead the procession. So it feels almost like someone was not thinking, but God was working behind the scenes. I like Ehud, he is a cool guy because he doesn't let any moss grow under his feet. He never said like Gideon, oh Lord, I'll put out this fleece and won't you do something? No, 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 he was a man of action, okay? Didn't wait for any writing on the wall, no strings of, of confirmation. He immediately thought, maybe this is an opportunity to save my people. Maybe God will be with me. So what he did, is he forged a dagger. And this dagger was about as long as 40 centimeters, so from about this part of your arm to your fingertips. He forged this dagger, and then he went and strapped it to his right thigh, okay, to his right thigh, and he hid it secretively. 
And then he headed off towards the Moabite king with his procession. Now, it seems a little crazy because surely you know you're going to be frisked before you go in front of uh, royalty. But, but remember, anybody who was someone in that culture was right-handed, okay, was just right-handed. Nobody's going to be strapping a dagger to their right leg. And anyway, what harm can a cripple do, right? Looks can be deceiving, So Ehud went with the procession, went with the tribute, and stood in front of Eglon, the Moabite king. And man, those 18 years had been good to the king. He filled his throne very snugly, okay? The Bible is very clear that he was fat, okay? Really, really fat. So we don't know what happened to the robust warlord. He is now plain and simple podgy. Okay, so I think um, Ehud looked at this guy and just went, all right, I gotta do what I gotta do. So, but he, he did nothing. So we expect some action at this point, but no. Ehud leaves with his traveling compa- uh, companions and they head all the way back to a place called Gilgal. Gilgal is significant for two reasons. Number one, it was a worship center. People came from all over to worship many different gods at this place called Gilgal. There were a lot of idols, a lot of carved images. It was a polytheistic worship center. But it was also significant for another reason. When Joshua was the leader of the Israelites, at a time he ordered that 12 stones be taken from the Jordan River and planted like monuments in this place called Gilgal. And why did he say that they must do that? He wanted it to be a visual reminder that God had parted the Red Sea, had parted the Jordan so that the Israelites could walk to freedom on dry ground. And why did God do this? It says um, in the scriptures, he did it because he wanted everyone to know about his power and he wanted his people to fear him. So I think when he had got to this place at Gilgal with his traveling companions, and he looked at those stones, I'm quite sure that they would have encouraged his heart. I'm quite sure that he would have remembered why they are significant. And perhaps just um, given him that last little push that he, that he needed to do what he did next. So what he did next was he left his traveling companions, he turned around, and he headed straight back to see the Moabite king. I can imagine the king's scouts standing out there, you know, looking and kind of scratching their heads and going, what is this guy coming back for? Like, did he forget something? But then, perhaps realizing that he had been to Gilgal, the the worship center, and maybe, just maybe, he had received a message from God to return. Who knows? So when he had came to to, to the king's attendants and said, He had a message for the king. It was not something abnormal or something weird. And I think King Eglon, who was smug and round, probably thought, yeah, I can can understand that I would have a special message from the divine. 
Um, so he got ushered right in to the king's presence. And then Ehud must have really got the king's curiosity going because he said, you know, actually, it's a secret message from God. So immediately, I'm sure the king snapped his fingers and sent all his attendants out and they closed the door and he was like ready to hear it. Now, a, a, a message in Hebrew, as I understand it, can have two meanings. The one is a message could be words that we speak, and the other meaning is that it could be an object. So technically, Ehud may not have lied <laughs> if we take the second meeting that he had a message from God. Um, so, as, and, and, this, and I think as he looked at Eglon, again, the significance of names came to him. Because the name Eglon, do you know what it means? It means calf or bullock. And I think as this portly king sat there in his throne, he may have looked just like the fattened calf ready for slaughter. <laughs> okay, and he was very re ready indeed because as Ehud stepped up to the king's throne to give him the message, the king rose to receive it. And fast as lightning, Ehud grabbed his um, dagger from his right thigh and plunged it straight into the king's belly. It was a lethal strike, and the king fell down dead. Now, this is a little uh, gory, and I'm sorry, but it's in the scripture. <laughs> so, so usually a stomach wound wouldn't kill somebody, but if you sever the main artery behind the abdomen, it can result in instant death. And that's exactly what happened with the king, and that's why he didn't cry out. Nobody heard him. He fell down dead. This next part gets even a little more graphic and a little bit more gory, but you can read it uh, for yourselves in the scripture. And the reason the narrator includes it is because it's really essential to the storyline. It gives us a clue as to how Ehud was able to escape. So when Eglon received that um, dagger, he got such a fright, it was so unexpected that he actually soiled himself. Okay, very gross, but I'm gonna explain why I say it to you now now. So what he had done then, did then is he ran, he locked the doors, and he jumped out probably through a window and escaped. Now the king's attendants had obviously been waiting, wanting to know what was this mystery message all about. And they came to the door, it was locked, that was strange, but there was this unpleasant odor in the air. <laughs> And so they must have thought, okay, the king's just doing his business, we'll leave him. And they left. And the scripture says they stood, they, they, they stayed away for an embarrassing long amount of time. This was essential for Ehud's escape. And all the while he was running and fleeing the scene of the crime. Eventually, these, the attendants put modesty aside, found a key, opened the door, barged in, and they found their king dead where he lay. In the meantime, Ehud had run all the way back to Gilgal, 
And I guess as he passed the stones, just as they gave him courage for the first part of his mission, which had now been completed, they now probably inspired him to do what he had to do next, which involved climbing a mountain, both literally and figuratively. Because now what he had to do is he had to rally the Israelites to war. But would these Israelites follow a disabled deliverer? Would they follow a disabled deliverer? And Ehud faced a choice. Would he risk it? Would he risk it and risk being rejected? Or would he go for it? Well, he had come that far, and as he climbed the hill country and summited the mountain, um, he put his faith out there, and he blasted his trumpets, and he summoned the Israelites to battle, um, and he shouted out, the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands, has given. He, he really had some pluck, some courage, you know, not will give, has given. And he summoned these Israelites to follow him. And did they look at him and go, oh, this left-handed freak and kind of shake their heads half-heartedly and walk away? No, they didn't. Their hearts caught fire and they joined with him to go and attack the Moabites in this moment where they were confused and leaderless. And they strategically went to the Jordan and they cut off the shallow parts. And that day, they um, cut down 10,000 Moabite warriors. It was a very decisive victory. And it was a victory which lasted in there being peace in Israel for the next 80 years under the leadership of Ehud, the judge. So God chooses and uses some really unlikely heroes in the scripture. God chooses and uses some really unlikely heroes. The story in The Usual Suspect caught people off guard, caught people, um, uh, viewers off guard because it did not meet their expectations. And this story does the same. The hero is unexpected. And very often the heroes in scripture are the unexpected ones. David, the shepherd boy, who got to slay the warrior giant and eventually become king. And now, as we are also just a few days before Christmas, um, Jesus, the savior of the universe, <laughs> the creator of everything, who was born into a manger to a lowly couple in a nowhere dusty town, who became the greatest hero ever known. So why do I tell this gory story just before Christmas? Are you asking that question? Good. <laughs> it's a good question to ask. Okay, why am I sharing a story about a left-handed assassin who stabs his enemy? Okay, and I share it because ultimately all the judges that we read about in the book of Judges all of them are actually flawed in some way. But all of them, perhaps except one, are very, very unlikely. And they all um, signpost or point us to our need for Christ. Christ was perhaps the most left-handed, if you like, 
or unexpected hero of all. In Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3, it says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. That is how our hero came to us. So the, the, the judges in, uh, in the book of Judges are, are similar to Christ in that they are unlikely heroes. They are outsiders. And Jesus was perhaps the, most, the greatest outsider and the most inside out um, leader of all. But the judges in scripture are also quite different to, to Jesus. And they're different to him, in a, or rather I should say he's different to them in a most profound and significant way. Because Ehud and the other judges, they triumphed by crushing their enemies. But Jesus, our hero, he triumphed by being crushed by his enemies. And while Ehud plunged a dagger into King Eglon's belly, Jesus received a spear to his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. Our hero, <laughs> he was seized and he was slaughtered, not like a fattened calf, but like a sacrificial lamb, so that we could be saved. That is the God that we serve. That is our hero, um, profoundly different from any other. So God uses and chooses unlikely heroes, and he turns weakness into strength. I'd like to just read a scripture in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5 to 6. It says this, not that we are competent, or you could replace that word with adequate or sufficient, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim that anything comes from us, but our competence or our sufficiency or our adequacy comes from God. And he has qualified us. What a beautiful phrase. And he has qualified us as ministers of a new covenant. So Ehud had a weakness. He had a deformity. He was an unlikely hero. And I guess he must have had some disqualifying voices in his head. And I think we all suffer from those. Uh, voices in our head, little um, tracks that play, that disqualify us from being used by God. And essentially, none of us hit the mark. None of us get it all right. None of us are perfect. And that is why Jesus, <laughs> the ultimate judge, the ultimate sacrifice, the greatest hero had to come. That is why he had to be seized and killed so that we could be saved. I have a friend that says, um, I have a perfect lamb. I have a perfect lamb and he is the one that qualifies me. And what a wonderfully true statement that is. So I guess my prayer today as we draw this year to a close and as we start a new year is that you would be encouraged by the story that God doesn't require perfect people 
flawless heroes, that the people he uses are very rough around the edges, but we have a perfect lamb. We have the ultimate hero um, who qualifies us, who makes us competent. God chooses and uses unlikely heroes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, Lord God, that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son. Thank you, Lord, that you are the true hero. You are the true hero and you demonstrated this by yourself sacrificial love for us. Lord, may we never lose sight of this. May we never stop marveling, stop having a sense of wonder at your abundant goodness and kindness to us. And Lord, I pray that we would not, um, we would not judge ourselves based on our spiritual performance or our bank accounts or our health or the state of our relationships but we would know that you are the one who qualifies us and that this would enable us to bring light and love wherever we go. Thank you for your people here today. I pray that you would um, bless them and fill them with worship in their hearts as they go from here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.